Welcome to Military Crime and Punishment. Now this is part two of the Allah Ali case. Now I find it interesting by the way that his first name is God, you know, in Arabic. So his mama named him God, I guess. Anyway, the, um, the following is the courtroom recording of the appeals court over whether or not Mr. Ali is subject to military law, whether um, they can court-martial him or not. Now, I, I hear a lot of people, uh, rightfully, are afraid of martial law. And Mr. Ali, uh, because of his employment, was subject to martial law. And uh, the reasoning is, like, um, the Fifth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution do apply in these cases but they're uh, restricted they don't have the breadth that civilian courts give them so being subject to martial law is a big deal and being a non-military person subjected to martial law is is uh, almost unheard of so the military I noticed is expanding its jurisdiction more and more because this case even as far back as Vietnam would have been thrown out of this uh, on this appellate uh, procedure here they would have just dismissed the case but that's not what happened in this case now I do have some other cases where the appellate court did throw it out and then it was reinstated so you'll want to hear what happened in those cases but if you're really going to get into the weeds about Mr. Ali this is the place and this is the the uh, recording now I know it goes up and down and and it's kind of hard to hear in a couple of spots but this is the recording that the military made and it's what we're stuck with so thanks for listening the court will now call U.S. v. Ali <coughs> Is the counsel for appellant ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. Counsel, before you begin, um, I have a, a quick question, which is, is it your view that this is an as-applied challenge or a facial challenge um, to the statute that we're looking at? Because what of the amicus says that it's, a, it's an as-applied challenge, but it's not clear to me from any of the briefs how that's so. Our view, Your Honor, that the, the court could reach uh, the same conclusion either on constitutional grounds or on an as-applied uh, grounds. Um, the court could as-applied is a constitutional basis. The question is: Is it unconstitutional on its face, or only as applied, or both? Which are you asking yes, us Your Honor, to rule as, on? As applied, Your Honor. Okay, so then my follow-up question would be: What would be circumstances under which it, it would be constitutional, in your view? Your Honor, the Supreme Court has told us how we can constitutionally extend jurisdiction over civilians. In Bibiardo um, and in Toth, um, well, I'll start with Toth first. The court suggested that um, Congress create a media-type statute to extend Article III jurisdiction. But more specifically, to answer the court's question, in Gugliardo, the court emphasized the option that the military has to, for the enlistment of specialists. They gave examples such as the Navy Seabees. Um, the Navy Paymaster case, uh, US, or 
United States v. Reed would be another example of the functional equivalent of enlistment. The key is that the civilian is an actual member of the armed services. Well, then he's not a civilian, is he? Well, in the, in the Navy Paymaster case, Your Honor, uh, he maintained a quasi-civilian status, but he was clearly, um, he signed an enlistment contract. He agreed to be subject to the orders of the ship's captain. He was even potentially eligible for a retirement from the Navy. But, Counsel, in, in that case, and in Toth and in Reed, weren't we dealing with individuals that were citizens of the United States? and who were, there was no question as to the applicability of the constitutional protections? That's true, Your Honor. But as Justice Frankfurter stated in United States v. Reed in his concurrence, um, the notion that the Constitution is not operative outside the United States is, is a notion that has long since evaporated. So but that's, but that's with respect to United States citizens. I mean, there's many Supreme Court cases, I believe, that um, say the exact opposite when you're talking about non-U.S. citizens and the applicability of the Constitution outside the United States. But going back to my original question, am I to understand that the, that the statute um, at issue would be constitutional only if people – agreed um, that they would be subject to the jurisdiction of the UCMJ? Not that they need to agree to be subject to the, to the jurisdiction of the UCMJ. That, that is an indication, Your Honor, um, of um, their joining the separate society that the Supreme Court identified in Parker v. Levy. Um, Mr. In Mr. Ali's case, he was not subject to military orders. As the military judge found, as a matter of fact, he was free to refuse missions. And that is counter to what it means, the very essence of what it means to be a soldier. When okay, a soldier but that, that presumes that you've got to be in the armed forces to be subject. Isn't Which, that a pretty big presumption, given the history of the United States, the history of the Articles of War, and the history of the Code since 1950? And remember, we're talking about 2A10 here. Your, Your Honor, I, I don't think that it's, it's a presumption. Um, I think it, it follows. We well, seem to be presuming that. You seem to say that, that if you're not a member of the armed forces of that separate society, you're not subject to jurisdiction. What are you saying? I'm, I'm saying, Your Honor, that the, this court should apply the Toth Doctrine, which was first enunciated in Toth v. Quarles, and then actually recognized as the Toth Doctrine in Gugliarda. And that's your okay. least possible power? Correct, Your Honor. I just okay. want to make sure I understand okay. your and, version. And was Toth a U.S. citizen? He was, Your Honor. He okay, since, okay, now, does, does, does the Fifth and Sixth Amendment of the Constitution apply to an alien outside the United States? It does, Your Honor, and in uh, the United States uh, or Supreme Court case of uh, Verdugo. Um, the Verdugo is a Fourth Amendment case. Yes, Your Honor, but there was significant, albeit dicta. Yeah, in, there's in significant Verdugo. dicta. Uh, that explains that the Fifth and Sixth Amendment says that it, it applies to persons. The Fourth Amendment identifies um, its applicability to citizens. Could you, could you so point out where Verdugo says that? As I looked at Verdugo, I, I didn't get that. And I, I did get the fact that if an, if an alien was in the United States and had substantial contacts to the United States, then they were afforded, in some cases, Fifth and Sixth Amendment protections. But I didn't. I mean, that's not the situation that we're dealing with here, is it? I, Your Honor, if, if I could, I would like to give you that site on, on rebuttal. Um, I know it, it is in my brief, and I, I can provide you with that site. I don't have that readily available. Counsel, has there ever been a case in which the, this court, the Supreme Court, or a lower court has identified someone as serving with or accompanying the armed forces 
and subjected them to court martial jurisdiction and said that they don't have all the rights of a U.S. citizen before a court martial. No, Your Honor. I don't Thank believe you. there has been a case. Let's, let's talk about the Toth and the. But, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, I may have misunderstood. My, my question was Is there any case in which a person who has been identified as serving with or accompanying the armed forces for purposes of court martial jurisdiction? was not given all the rights that a U.S. citizen was given before the court-martial. Well, if, if I understand your, your question, Your Honor, there's, there's two parts to my answer. The, the first part is that when um, a person is subjected to a court-martial court jurisdiction, they receive military due process, and that's distinct from constitutional due process, including the Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights. Has this, court, has this court used the term military due process in the last quarter century, or have we applied the Constitution of the United States except as excluded? That's, that's correct, Your Honor. I, I get the phrase military due process from Bernie. That's 1957 case. Yes, Your Honor, but that is the case that the government relies on. Um, but I'm talking about right now. Members of the armed forces are given all the constitutional rights of their civilian counterparts unless there's a reason for excluding it. Has there ever been a circumstance in which a person who is an alien or a person who is not a U.S. citizen would be brought before a court-martial and not get all the same constitutional rights as a U.S. citizen would get before that court-martial? I, I don't believe so. Let me ask it a different way. Do foreign nationals serve in the United States military? They have to have some sort of status, Your Honor. They don't have to be actual citizens, but they do have to, um, I believe, be um, um, resident aliens or, um, I'm sorry, um, I'm, I'm not sure what the term is, but they have to have some status that allows Lawful them to permanent term. residence. Uh, lawful sorry, permanent residence? Law, lawful permanent residence, yes, Your Honor. So people serve in the United States military who are not, in fact, citizens yet? Yes, Your Honor. That correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, and do they get all the constitutional rights of their counterparts who are U.S. citizens? Well, they're in the armed forces. They get all the constitutional, the same constitutional rights as other soldiers. They do not receive the same constitutional rights. Understood. Has there been a case in which a person who is not a citizen of the United States has been brought before an Article Three court and has not been given all the constitutional rights of a citizen of the United States? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Okay. Counsel, so are we're, we're, you're not suggesting, or I don't think an issue in this case is that um, the appellee in this case wasn't afforded all the protections at his court-martial that other service members are, correct? You're not making that assertion? No, Your Honor, we're not. Um, no, you're making the assertion that he's due more. He's due more than our own troops are due under the code. Our argument is due, is that he is due all the rights and protections that are found in an Article Three court. And just, just to go back to my original question, because um, I'm, I'm still having trouble seeing how this isn't a facial challenge, but you're saying it's not a facial challenge because there could be a circumstance in which it would be okay if it was the, the, the least avail, um, whatever the phrasing is. The, the least um, power adequate. To the right, post. but then what I understand from your brief is there's no set of circumstances in which that would be the case because they could always create a court, um, a different court, an Article Three court that would have jurisdiction over them or turn them over to Iraq or well, turn them over to Canada. And in none of those circumstances would he fall under 2A10. The fundamental problem, Your Honor, in this case is that Congress made a choice. They chose not to cover Mr. Ali um, by the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act. So your answer is that 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 since the, the the solution you view this constitutional solution is to extend media, 
that, that, that you are making um, an, a facial challenge to the statute? The, the court in Toth recommended a MEJA-type solution, Your Honor. Yes, but MEJA was enacted to deal with a wholly separate problem. Major was enacted to deal with dependent misconduct overseas, where there really is a constitutional hole. Major was not enacted to deal with this question. I mean, do you, do you understand why saying that, that, that there's a way in which the, the statute can operate by um, making him subject to a different statute, not this one, is, doesn't take you out of the facial challenge land? I, I think I understand your, your point, Your Honor. Can I ask you to step back and act as if you're starting over? And there's a statutory application issue and there's a constitutional question. What is the issue you'd like us to focus on? If you thought we were going to decide this case in your favor, how would we decide it? Your Honor, the as I said, the fundamental problem in this case is that Congress made a choice not to cover um, host nation nationals. Um, now, to, to answer Judge uh, Stuckey's question uh, a little bit more in depth, while it, it may have been the case that MEJA was passed to address um, the results of uh, the post-Toth cases where, whereby the Supreme Court found that there was no jurisdiction. No, post-Reed post v. Covert. Post-Reed v. Covert. Yeah, dependence overseas. But for, if, if I could uh, just give you one illustration of how MEJA is, is in fact, employed um, to extend jurisdiction over contracts. Counsel, is this your answer to my question? Something it's, about MEJA? The... It's part of the answer to, to your question. What's your the Honor. pivot point of this case? The pivot point of this case, Your Honor, is that Congress has the authority to extend Article Three jurisdiction over Mr. Ali. They are, chose are not they to constitutionally compelled to. Absolutely not, Your Honor. They're not. Okay. However, well, they, then they made a choice that's within their power. Do you understand the Chief Judge's question? He's saying, I, I think, put it in a different way. Is your better argument that that that, that you win on constitutional grounds or on statutory grounds? And then why? Is that a different way of getting into your question? I, I think the, the, the better argument, in fact, Your Honor, is that we should win on constitutional grounds. Okay, However, and now why? Because when Congress chose not to extend Article Three jurisdiction and instead later chose to extend Article One court-martial jurisdiction over Mr. Ali, they violated the Toth Doctrine. Okay, so there, your constitutional argument pivots on the Toth Doctrine. Correct, your and Honor. your theory of the Toth Doctrine is it requires Congress to exercise the least possible power to accomplish the end. Is that correct? Correct, Your Honor. Now, why isn't this the least possible power? It appears to be your theory that so long as there is a court open somewhere in the world, the obligation is to bring the person back to the United States. Is that correct? That is, the, I think, the practical result of the theory, Your Honor. Um, but as Justice Harlan said in his concurrence in Reed v. Covert, it's the absence of civil authority um, that makes military But it appears to me that so your argument essentially is so long as there is a court, an Article Three court open in the United States, it matters not how hard the combat is, where the combat is, or what role this person or the witnesses that might be implicated in the case might be performing. It does not matter. The only option is to bring them back to the United States as a matter of constitutional law. Unless the military has previously, uh, th that's, I think that's correct, Your Honor. Okay, so oh. now he's on a submarine. He's a contractor on a submarine on alert. And they're supposed to surface, helo them back to the United States under your theory of the law? 
what's the limit of your doctrine? It seems to have no limit. It's, it's a doctrine that swallows the whole and basically says, can't do it. The, uh, the, the answer, Your Honor, is found, in again, in Gugliardo, where the court said that the military has it within their means to make these individuals members of the armed forces, oh. such as the Navy Seabees, who are actually um, incorporated into the armed forces. Okay, and, and you're saying that jurisdiction over civilians accompanying, serving with or, and it's an or, it's not an and, serving with or accompanying the armed forces in, in, in the theater, um, simply cannot attach unless they are quasi-enlisted. I, I think, yes, Your Honor, unless they're, they Okay, now what's the, how, I, I don't see how you get there from Toth. Toth had to do with a discharged American serviceman in the United States, and here we have an alien contractor in Iraq. Um, you're talking, you know, Reed v. Covert talked about 2A11, which in 1950 was a novelty. We're not talking about 2A11. We're talking about 2A10, which in 1950 wasn't a novelty, but continued a tradition of jurisdiction and went straight back to 1775. How do you answer the argument of history that this jurisdiction has been, ex has been exercised at home and abroad? And we're talking about abroad here. We're talking about in theater, uh, you know, assuming arguendo that it fits the facts, and we, we, you know, I'm not addressing your statutory argument. How do you get rid of nearly 200-plus two, years of history of exercising jurisdiction in theater in time of war and say, well, you know, Reed v. Covert, which deals with an entirely different matter, somehow applies? I, Your Honor, I see that my time is about to expire if I may answer. It has not about to expire. It has, but you're welcome to continue to respond. Your Honor, I would respectfully uh, point to what the court said in starting in Reed v. Covert and, Frankfurter's, and Justice Frankfurter's concurrence and actually adopted by the court in Gugliardo that the materials that you refer to um, are too episodic, too meager to form a solid basis in history. Uh, Frankfurter was talking about courts martial in time of peace. They are hardly episodic when you look at the record of the use of military justice in time of war, which is what we're talking about today. Well, if, it was if referring may, to something else. If, if I may, can I answer? Of course. Thank you, Your Honor. The operations in Iraq were a contingency operation. They were not a declared war. So the same concerns that were present um, in at the Averitt case, where you had the, the concern about military jurisdiction being exercised on a whole range of military-type operations, in this case contingency operations, is still present, and the Toth Doctrine controls. Okay, yeah, one I more have question. Haven't we looked, has, hasn't American jurisprudence since Ba or Bass, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, V. Tingey in 1800, looked to the actual existence of hostilities and not to the question of whether it was declared or not? I, I think, Your Honor, that in Bas they were talking about a, a very different issue. There was The Fifth and Sixth Amendments were not implicated in that case. And as this Court recognized in Averitt, when you delve into the very sense, constitutionally sensitive area of subjecting uh, civilians to, to courts martial, the, the well, Court should apply Well, it wasn't this enacted by Congress. I mean, we don't know. But if you read the statute, doesn't this have the practical effect of overruling Averitt? 
I don't think so, Your Honor. I think it. it Averett said this only kicks in in declared war. This says it kicks in in declared war or a contingency operation, which everyone admits this is. Yes, Your Honor. Isn't that an overruling of Averett by statute? I don't think so, Your Honor, because Averett what is didn't, it? Averett didn't didn't address this specific issue because contingency operation was not part of the. No, statute. no, no. But Averett addressed the question of what was war for the purpose of two A ten. I think, Your Honor, that the important piece to take away from Averett is that the court applied the Toth doctrine to analyze the statute, to interpret the statute as narrowly as, as possible in order to avoid the constitutional issues that inevitably arise when civilians are subjected to court martial jurisdiction. Uh, counsel, I have two quick questions for you. You focus on the constitutional argument. If we were to focus on the statutory application argument, what would be your best argument? Your Honor, my best argument brief. is that Mr. Ali had no military status. He was not subject to military orders. And therefore was not accompanying or serving with? Which portion of the statutory phrase are you focusing on? He was not accompanying the armed forces, Your Honor, because um, Been, uh, the, the only definition that is in statute is in media and so for, for what it means to accompany the armed forces. And those statutes specifically exempt host nationals. And that's the same excuse that the government and, used. And that's your strongest argument if we're going to focus on that. I just You don't have to spell it all out. I just want to know where you would like us to focus. I, I think my, my strongest argument, Your Honor, is that Mr. Ali was not an actual member of the armed forces because he was not subject to orders. Okay, and uh, in terms of the constitutional law question, is it your view Congress was acting here solely pursuant to the Rules and Regulations Authority or also the war power and necessary and proper power? They were acting solely um, in accordance with the Make Rules Clause, Your Honor. And is that your um, is, is that essential to, for you to win the case for us to determine that? Do you win or lose if the war power is applied as well? I believe we should win even if the war powers <laughs> Sorry, applies, Your Honor. Very well. Thank you. Counsel, uh, I do have one question, and I'd like you to address covert at page 33 and 34, the Supreme Court's decision, where the court, after having a very strong statement against court-martial jurisdiction over civilians, over a broad set of circumstances, <coughs> refers to the cases in which lower courts have held that jurisdiction existed, doesn't criticize those cases at all, and says, from a time prior to the adoption of the Constitution, the extraordinary circumstances present in the area of actual fighting have been considered sufficient to permit punishment of some civilians in that area by military courts under military rules. Has there been any Supreme Court decision since covert that has cast doubt on that particular comment by the Supreme Court as to the existence of that power in the area of actual hostilities? I don't believe, Your Honor, that there's been a Supreme Court case directly on point. And so putting aside Averitt, which I'm, I know you're not conceding Averitt, but let's assume that Averitt's a statutory interpretation decision by our court. What in this case would exclude this individual from being present in the area of actual finding that would permit his punishment by a military court. That is, taking the words of covert, 
the words in which the court that was extremely critical of any military jurisdiction over civilians, recognizing that in the area of hostilities that jurisdiction would exist. Does this case fall under those circumstances or not? It does not, Your Honor. I believe that the court in that particular passage was referring to um, the exercise of war powers. War powers is not at play in this case. Why not? There was no declared war, Your Honor. War powers are only kicking in declared war? What, what are we doing over there? What were we doing in Korea? The Dancing down the primrose path? In that case, they also referred, as well as in, as in uh, Toth, to the cases of the hostilities involving uh, the Indians. And I don't believe that those involve declared wars. That's correct, Your Honor. But you in, could, in you the case could, of the inmates, they, they were in continuous um, custody as a result of court martial. So no, I was referring to the Indians, not inmates. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, counsel, you'll have more time on rebuttal. Counsel for the government. Chief Judge Baker, judges of the court, may it please the court. I'm Captain Chad Fisher, and along with Colonel Michael Mulligan, we represent the United States. There's no question that Congress can assert court-martial jurisdiction over members of the land and naval forces pursuant to the Make Rules Clause of Article 1, Section 8. The issue in this case is whether Mr. Ali is a person who can be regarded as falling within the term land and naval forces. Is it your view that Mr. Ali was a member of the land or naval forces? Yes, Your Honor. For the purposes of the Make Rules Clause, he is a member of the Land and Naval Forces. And, and if he isn't, do you lose? I think so, Your Honor. Yes. Our argument is... So you mean the war power is not at play here? No, Your Honor. We don't believe that the war powers are necessary in order to assert That's court martial jurisdiction. That's different than saying, is the war power a constitutional authority that is applicable in this instance? I hear you saying, no, this is a pure rules and regulations case. Yes, Your Honor. That's the government's position. I think that pursuant The government to concedes that if he's not a member of the armed forces in some status, you lose? I'm not conceding that point, Your Honor. I don't seem to have just conceded it. No, I don't think we need it in order to assert court-martial jurisdiction over Mr. Ali. Now, I recognize the quote uh, in I'm, covert. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Let me read so a sentence in your, on page 11 of your brief. A person who is to be tried by court-martial must be a person who can be regarded as falling within the term land and naval forces. <coughs> Period. For the purposes of this case, Your Honor, yes, I think so. And so if we were to determine, as Justice Black did, that unless someone is actually serving in the land or naval forces, uh, they, they are not subject to that regulation, constitutional regulation, you lose. I think, Your Honor, that's again, what you're saying. That's what we're hearing, by the way. Technically, yes, Your Honor. We have not, not asserted. Y yes or no, right? Yes. Yes. We uh, have not asserted the war powers as a basis for jurisdiction why not? over Mr. Ali. Because I don't think that we need it, Your Honor. Well, I, let's, I, let's say that we think you do need it. Make your argument. Well, Your Honor, there's the war power. If you're prepared to, and if you're not, then say you're not. I mean. Well, Your Honor, I'm not fully prepared to brief that. But um, I think that the war powers, I mean, the court, yes, they carved out that exception uh, in Reed and said that to the extent those people in Pearlstein and DiBartolo and Gerlach were not members of the land and naval forces, then it was based on the war powers. But our position is that 
they weren't clear about the cases in covert, but many of those people in those World War One and World War II cases were members of the Land and Naval Forces, <coughs> just like Mr. Ali. What about the jurisdiction over sutlers and similar person under the Articles of War? Were they members of the Land and Naval Forces, or were they simply accompanying them? Well, Your Honor, I think that by nature of their accompaniment, they became members of the Land and Naval okay. Forces such that they were subject to jurisdiction. At some point during this guy's pretrial confinement, he was fired by his civilian employer. Yes, Your Honor. He, became, he was no longer a contractor. Yes, Your Honor. That's right. Presumably, he no longer had a right to whatever ID card the contractors get. Okay. Now, how is he a member of the Land and Naval Forces if he's no longer a contractor and the only reason he's there is that he's in pretrial confinement, which he's certainly not doing voluntarily. Right. I understand that, Your Honor. And I think that the courts have addressed this. I mean, particularly in, uh, I think it was Pearlstein and, and Gerlach in many of these cases. Well, if he's actually a member of the, of the land and naval forces, why did they need to have a separate statutory provision? Why doesn't he just fall under the regular jurisdictional provisions? Well, Your Honor, I think that Congress has the authority to distinguish between uniformed service members and a, and a civilian who could but, become... But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say members who are doing this are, are members of the land and naval forces, right? That's not what the statute says. No, it doesn't, Your Honor. It's actually broader than that. It says persons who are serving with or accompanying. But it doesn't go on to say they're members of the land and naval forces. I mean, that's, that's the problem with your argument. Well, Your Honor, I think we have to distinguish between the constitutional basis and then what Congress has decided to enact yeah, based but you're, on that you're making You're using statutory language to address a constitutional issue. Yes, and Your you Honor. You need to stay within the constitutional framework if you're going to rely solely on land and naval forces. I mean, let's think of it this way, right? I, th I don't think anyone in this room disagrees that to the extent that jurisdiction is, exer is exercised or may be exercised over civilians by, by a military court, that the extent that that can happen, that A, there has, it has to be very narrow, and B, there has to be a constitutional basis for it. Yes, Your right? Honor, I would agree. So now explain to us what the, con the, what the constitutional basis is for the statute. And you can't refer to the statutory language in order to answer the constitutional question. Well, I, I agree, Your Honor. And the constitutional basis is the Make Rules Clause of Article 1, Section 8, which enables Congress to make rules for the government and regulation of now, the United Forces. Isn't that a circular argument, though? I mean, you're arguing that the Make Rules Clause allows Congress to make rules, regulations, laws that govern the land and naval forces. But when you look at Article to a one, they're talking about person serving with or accompanying the armed forces. So how do you make that jump? I mean, it, it comes back, I think, to the initial question is whether or not this individual was in the land or naval forces, and whether or not persons serving with or accompanying the forces are part of those forces. If you look at the language in Article 2A1, it doesn't seem that they are. They're accompanying the forces. They're not part of the forces. Well, Your Honor, I think that the court has used different language to describe the statute and the Constitution. But I think what we know from the case law is that the amenability of court-martial jurisdiction turns on your status. Uh, We're looking here at the language of the statute and the language of the Constitution. And, and we don't disagree that it turns on the status. The question is, is whether there's a constitutional basis for Congress to extend the status to these individuals. Do you, do you understand the difference? I do, Your Honor, and it's, it's our position that by virtue of their either employment or by virtue of their serving with or by virtue of their accompaniment, they become so directly connected. You're arguing they're de facto members of the land and naval forces. Is there some missing word here that we haven't found yet? Well, well Your Honor, I think, I think that 
members of the land and naval forces is not exclusive to uniformed service members. And I think the court in Reed expressly said that uh, on page 22 and 23, the court said, we recognize that there might be circumstances where a person could be in the armed services for purposes of Clause 14, even though he had not been formally inducted into the military or did not wear the uniform. So it's, it's, that is so what I'm relying on. that's the hinge on. to your okay. argument. Yes, yes. The trigger, the statutory trigger is declared war or a contingency operation. Both of which, uh, declared war is, is a, you know, an obvious doctrine, and a contingency operation implies actual hostilities. So how are we not under the war power here? I don't think that contingency operation in all circumstances, Your Honor, Well, you read the statutory definition. No, but it, it is a situation in which the reserves are called up. You read the statutory definition in 101. Um, a, a, a contingency operation strongly implies actual hostility. It does, Your Honor, but, you know, for example, Operation Unified Response, the earthquake relief in Haiti was a contingency operation. What do you, what do, you do about the language in Covert where the Supreme Court specifically says that the constitutional power to create court-martial jurisdiction over civilians, if such power exists, arises from Congress's war powers? Your Honor, that quote from Covert was referring to the World War One and World War Two district court cases, so the Pearlsteins, and what the court said was, to the extent they are not members of the land and naval forces, then it must rest on Congress's war powers. So there's okay, really well, two let's bases. Just, let's just for the sake of argument, assume as your premise for your continuing constitutional discussion that you've not persuaded us um, that, that they're members of the land and naval forces by virtue of a statute that says the people that are accompanying, okay, serving with or accompanying whatever the specific language is. So focus on an argument that doesn't make us assume that civilians are members of the land and naval forces. Well, Your Honor, he's not a civilian. Uh, it's the government's position that at the time that he engaged in this employment and took a job with so the... So if we disagree with you and we say, no, he's a civilian, you lose? We lose under the Make Rules Clause argument, yes, Your Honor. I, I, if the court... Well, and you're not making any other argument. No, we're not making any other why, argument. Why are you so opposed to the War Powers argument? I'm not opposed to it, Your Honor. I just are don't you think... making it? You seem to be just pushing us back. I mean, no, that, I just don't it, think it appears that it's... to be an alternative basis for, for a constitutional... And it, basis it, for the statute. And it appears to be at least somewhat compelled by the language of the article. There is, Your Honor, I think an alternative basis under the war powers. But the problem is, is that's not well defined. Uh, there's no left and right limits, if you will, or doctrine that we can apply. So it's well defined that when a person from Canada uh, gets hired by a civilian contractor and goes down to Fort Benning and takes a few courses and sends over Iraq, it's obvious that he's now a member of the armed forces, even though he doesn't have, uh, have uh, military pay, even though he doesn't have military, uh, full military benefits at that point, even though he's not, as a military judge found, subject to specific orders to the extent that he can refuse. He's a member of the armed forces. But your Honor, let me just, that last bit, the finding by the military judge was that he, was, that he had the ability to refuse missions. And I think that that is different than saying he had the right to refuse orders. I think the evidence established that once he goes on a mission, he is subject to the orders of the squad leader of the 170th MP Company. Or third, did the military judge find that specifically? No, he didn't, Your Honor, but I think that we can presume that the but military used... But, but if he refuses the order to go on the mission, you never get there. 
That's true, Your Honor. And if there were evidence in the record that Mr. Ali had refused missions, I think there'd be a much stronger argument for the appellant that he was not necessarily okay. a member of the Lenin okay. Naval Force. But there's no evidence. Is, is the reason that you're, you're being resistant to the war powers is because you say, well, there's no logical limit because if it's not an actual war and it includes contingency operations, oh, my goodness, then the sky could fall and this could apply to too many people and then you won't like that. I mean, is that what's going on? Well, I think it's difficult to identify a limiting principle. To, well, why isn't a, lim a limiting pr principle as applied challenges? I mean, have you read the amicus brief? What about what about, about the limiting principle of hostilities, active hostilities? Well, yes, Your Honor. I mean, I Why think isn't the, that a limiting principle? I think the limiting principle are all three uh, requirements of Article 2A10. I think that it's contingency operation combined with in the field combined with accompanying and serving. Why weapons. doesn't that serve to cap whatever assertion of war power the president may or may not be asserting? It, it might, Your Honor, but again, I just don't think based on the facts, based on the strength of Mr. Ali's direct connection to the armed forces that we need to rely on the war powers in order to assert jurisdiction over Mr. Ali. If no, it's it, that clear that he was a member, why doesn't the contract just say so? There seems that there's each side has lined up 349 facts, and the one fact that seems to be missing is that none of these materials say, and welcome aboard. <laughs> I, I think that's right, Your Honor, but... but and that would be pretty easy for the government to write in, right? It would, Your Honor, but two points on that. I think the military judge, first of all, found, uh, made a factual finding that Mr. Ali was aware that he could be subject to the UCMJ. Not in the contract, but as part of his training, he was made aware that he could be subject to the UCMJ. But the second point on that, Your Honor, is that the court in McCune versus Kilpatrick addressed this question specifically as far as whether or not the appellant needs to have knowledge of uh, UCMJ jurisdiction. And the court said absolutely not. Uh, the statute doesn't say knowingly accompany the armed forces. It says accompany the armed forces. And it's, objective, it's an objective test based on the totality of the circumstances. What role does necessity of anything play in any of your arguments? Necessity meaning that this is necessary in order to accomplish the military mission or you fill in the necessity? I think it is necessary, Your Honor, I mean, in terms of the members of the 170th MP Company need to know uh, that Mr. Ali is going to... I don't think that was his question. I think his question is what role does that factor play in whether you, you're in your argument? Not whether there was necessity, but what role does necessity play in whether you win or lose or whether this, this statute is okay? It's part of the argument, Your Honor, but I think that the Supreme Court has clearly said that it is not sufficient in order to assert court-martial jurisdiction. But is it necessary? Yes, Your Honor. I, I think that. So, if it's if it's a necessity for the mission, how come there's how many cases have there been using this authority? That I know of, Your Honor. I, I, this, is, this is the only one that I know of. I couldn't. I couldn't say. And what does that tell us about the necessity of having this authority? If it's part of your argument, I don't think it tells us anything, Your Honor, because I mean, I think the question for the court is limited to the facts of this case. Uh, but again, I don't think that necessity. Answers the the constitutional question may not be limited, though, because we're looking at how the Constitution applies in this and other contexts. That's true, Your Honor. But, I mean, I think that the Supreme Court has been fairly clear uh, in telling the government not to come to the court with explanations such as, if we don't have court-martial jurisdiction, this person is not going to be prosecuted. I think it's very clear that that is not a basis for asserting court-martial jurisdiction. They have to be, at least in the government's position, they have to be a member or their connection must be so strong and sufficient to make them a member of the land and naval forces. Why doesn't the least restrictive means test play into the question of the availability of another forum? I mean, here 
the media has been, in fact, the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act for over a decade. Justice Department has testified that it's been used in numerous cases. Despite all the years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the thousands of individuals who have served as contractors, and the significant allegations of misconduct on behalf of contractors, and the significant cases that have been brought against contractors under media, we have one case in which an individual is sentenced to oh, five months confinement reduced to 115 uh, days. Now, under media, you've got a very similar case, the Brem case. South African contractor for a U.S. company involved in an assault against another contract employee, a contract for USAID, with a knife, very similar to this case. And that happened in November of 2010. He's brought to the United States in January, and by July there's a sentence of 42 months confinement. What about that case or anything in this record or the legislative history of the 2006 amendment to Article 2 tells us that the power that's being exercised here is the least power adequate to the means. Well, Your Honor, a couple things on that. First, as far as the applicability of MEJA, I think the record and the military judge in ACA had noted uh, that MEJA does not apply by the terms of the statute to host nation national. Right, so I, I think the question is, 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 this, is this much ado about a class, uh, a class of persons equaling exactly one, um, meaning that this statute has only been used in a situation like this, which it appears to be the situation that has come up, where the um, accused is a host nation <coughs> national. And, and if so, why does that justify the necessity for the statute at all as opposed to some other means? Well, Your Honor, I think there's a difference between the necessity for the statute and the necessity as far as good order and discipline. Uh, but I think the language that Judge well, Efron was... But, well, but I mean, you can't have one without the other, right? Well, just because the statute hasn't been used, Your Honor, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not necessary to go to our discipline in the unit. Uh, in this one case? Perhaps, Your Honor, but I just don't, I don't think that the number of times the statute has been used informs the constitutional question or the jurisdictional analysis. Didn't the Supreme Court in, uh, in Covert and in Toth... Co excuse me, covert, take a look at the number of individuals uh, and then later again in Guagliardo uh, and Kinsella and say, yeah, there are a lot of dependents out there who are murdering their spouses and we have other problems that are going on, but we don't think the armed forces will fall apart uh, if those people, if Congress doesn't figure out a way to prosecute them. So isn't that, doesn't the Supreme Court tell us that the volume and its actual impact on discipline is a factor to be considered. Not necessarily a determinative factor, but a factor to be considered with respect to uh, the uh, constitutionality of the statute. I don't think so, Your Honor, because I think in the context in which that argument was raised, it was really in response to the government's arguments about why we need jurisdiction. I don't think that they were using that, or the Supreme Court was using that, as a basis for uh, overturning the statute. I think the basis was essentially that civilian dependents are not members of the land and naval forces whether they're stationed in the United States or stationed overseas. But if I could come back to your question about the availability of alternative forums, yeah. I think that that language from Toth is really just a legal conclusion. Uh, I think that the real question is how do we determine whether or not something 
is the least possible power. And I think the Supreme Court has told us a couple things about that. Uh, first, I think that the availability of alternative forums does not inform that uh, at all. The Supreme Court has never phrased the test in terms of the availability of alternative forums. Wasn't Justice Harlan's concurring vote in Covert critical to getting a majority in that case, and he relied on that proposition? I think he did, Your Honor, but again, I, there was no, well, there's no opinion of the court in, in Covert to begin That's with. That's right. There wouldn't have been a decision in that case had he not uh, joined it and, uh, and uh, offered that rationale. Your Honor, I, I don't disagree that it, the, the did rationale... Any, did any of the members of the plurality disagree with that rationale? I don't, I don't think they did, Your Honor. And I recognize the fact that that argument is out there, and I think that the appellant and the appellant's amicus make that argument very heavily. Uh, but that line from Toth says, all, it says, court-martial jurisdiction must be the least possible power. So it applies to all court-martial jurisdiction. It does not apply to court-martial jurisdiction just over civilians who have become members of the land and naval forces. And clearly, a service member can be made subject to federal criminal law. Uh, under the appellant's theory, I think 2A7 uh, definitely goes away because we can certainly subject inmates uh, to federal jurisdiction. But one other point I'd like to make on that, Your Honor, is that the case law doesn't support that proposition. Specifically, uh, Ex parte Milligan was a martial law case. Now, there's no doubt that the Supreme Court in Milligan looked at whether or not the civil courts were functioning, but that was a martial law case, and martial law is intended to be a substitute for civilian law. So it makes sense to look at whether or not the civil courts are functioning before you institute May martial law. May I ask law. you a question? Yes, Your Honor. Please. How would the government's argument apply or not apply in the context of a domestic contingency operation? Uh, let's say you have a foreign national interpreter working at NORAD as part of Noble Eagle, and they're there to ensure that they can communicate effectively with foreign national pilots flying into the United States to avoid them getting shot down for a scenario. Does the, government argue, does the government's argument apply in that context or not? I think it does, Your, Your Honor. I think what we're getting at is really the in-the-field prong of, of 2A10, and I think that so just to be clear, and your time's over, but since you're answering my question, you can continue. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> and if there are any others. Uh, the, um, to be clear, you're saying that this would apply equally, mitatis mitandis, within the United States if it was a contingency operation in the United States. I think so, Your Honor, assuming that the facts establish that some part of the United States has become the field for the purpose of 2A10. Well, let me ask you this. Is the government's view that Operation Noble Eagle is the field? No, Your Honor, it's not. I, I mean, Why is it not? Well, I think where are we referring to, Your Honor? We're just referring to the airspace. Defense of the airspace, Operation Noble Eagle. It's right. a contingency operation. It's been so designated. Why is that not the field, or is it the field? Well, Your Honor, the Supreme Court, I think, has taken, has defined in the field, and Bernie, I think, the court in Bernie defined in the field. So they weren't addressing Noble Eagle, and I'm asking the government, which has a unique responsibility for Operation Noble Eagle, to tell me what its view is as to whether that's a contingency operation that would fall within the context of this statute. Well, Your Honor, I don't know the precise left and right limits of Operation Noble Eagle, but I think the I, I don't think that the facts establish that the United States well, just generally, if pilots are flying sorties against perceived threats and are authorized to let their weapons go, I mean, isn't that a a conflict situation? 
Potentially, Your Honor. I mean, I, I think like the World War One and World War Two cases, right? If we're talking about occupied Germany, no, we're uh, talking about Operation Noble Eagle, and if pilots were authorized to let their weapons go within the bounds of the United States, within the bounds of the United States, they yeah. were authorized. Well, I still think that the interpreter would need to be in an area of actual hostilities, and he's supporting, the, he's supporting the mission. I mean, if, if he's he's talking to foreign pilots, we're ringing. And the mission over. is the airspace above his head. Sure, I understand that, Your Honor. But the, I think the question is, where are actual hostilities taking place? Uh, now you're importing actual hostilities, where before you were going on and on about him being a member of the armed forces. Which is it? I mean, is, is, well, he is, was is responding your, is, to my question. In fairness, is, is, is your is your answer then that that whether whether a ten applies depends on the existence of hostilities? I mean, that it's not just the language of the statute, but the, that it's limited um, by additional factors. Your Honor, I don't think that 2A10 applies unless we are in the field. And in the field is defined as an area of actual fighting. So if the United States had become an area of actual fighting, then yes, I so think that it would apply. I'm not prepared at this time to address the specific 9-11 noble eagle question. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, Your Honor, because I, I don't know the left and right. I want to put you in a box. Right. It's a critical question, and, and I don't want you to say something right. just to survive the moment and live with it. Right. And, uh, and all this question? is disregarding the DOD directive that places additional okay. um, what? limits on, on the exercise of 2A10 jurisdiction. As far as approval authority, yes, Your Honor, I think it does. That's, that's right. one, more question. Sure. one more question from uh, Judge Ryan. Um, my, the other question I have is in terms of, um, again, assume for the sake of my question that um, I don't agree with you that these are members of the Air and Naval Forces. So just assume that for the base of my question, okay? Um, would it matter in terms of necessity, in your view, if the accused in this case, um, rather than being an Iraqi national, um, had been a U.S. citizen um, subject to MEJA? I no. Mean, in, in that case, you think that this would still be the that there would still be appropriate to exercise court martial jurisdiction as opposed to Article Three jurisdiction if both forms were available? Yes, Your Honor, because I don't think that those are they are not mutually exclusive. Well, I understand that Mija says that they're, that they're, that they're not mutually exclusive, but I'm asking you in terms of the constitutional question. We're testing the limits of your theory. Yes, Your Honor, and and again, I think that comes back to again the availability of alternative forums. And, and so I, now I'm telling you, there is an alternative forum, and it's in the United States. Right, and it's our position, Your Honor, that the availability of alternative forums neither create nor defeats court-martial jurisdiction. Thank you, Counsel. Counsel, may I ask may I ask one question? Brief. Actual hostilities. If this court were to adopt that as a limiting principle for the phrase in the field military judge today in Iraq were to determine that in an identical situation there were no actual hostilities taking place. Let's assume that that finding isn't clearly erroneous. It's the government's position that there would be no jurisdiction under the statute? That there were no actual... That there were That's right. If a military judge today were to determine under the conditions today in Iraq We'd have the identical situation of this case that there were no actual hostilities. That is otherwise a person accompanying the armed forces, that it is otherwise a contingency operation, but it is not actual hostilities. Would the government agree that there is no jurisdiction in that case? I think so, Your Honor. I mean, I think that in a qualified way. I don't think that bullets need to be flying over the courthouse in order for them to be in the field. So, I Right. I understand. I'm not asking you to define the term actual hostilities, I'm saying if the military judge were to find, as a matter of fact, 
there were no, in a matter of law, mixed question, that there were no actual hostilities, and that was not clearly erroneous, would the government agree that there's no jurisdiction? I think so, Your Honor. I think in that, in that hypothetical, we would fail on the third prong as far as uh, in the field. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, there's a written uh, amicus brief on behalf of the appellant that's in the record, and we're now going to hear uh, amicus argument uh, on behalf of the government, I believe. Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Judge, Your Honors, may it please the Court. My name is Jeff Barnum, and I'm appearing on behalf of amicus in support of the government. To start, we are making the argument that the proper constitutional source of authority for Article 2A10 is the war powers. Why do you use the phrase de facto war so often? Why not just call it hostilities, conflict, or contingency? Uh, because, Your Honor, there's a, I was making a distinction between de facto and a declared war. And actual hostilities would uh, qualify as a... So there's nothing magic about the word war. You're not trying to uh, bleed war in. You would say that your argument stays the same if there's hostilities? Yes, Your Honor. Hostilities that, that fall within the definition of a contingency operation? Yes, Your Honor. So the war power would apply if there's hostilities. It's not necessarily necessary for a court, for example, to determine that there's a de facto war as opposed to merely hostilities. Your Honor, the... Uh, for the war powers to be triggered, hostilities uh, would, be the, would be the important factor. You've there. answered my question. Thank you. The government uh, shies away from using the war powers as the constitutional source of authority because there's no limiting uh, principle. We believe that there are four factors that can be derived from the cases. When you say that there's no limiting principle, do you mean that they've identified no limiting principle or that there is no limiting principle? Your Honor, that the government couldn't identify a limiting principle. However, the Supreme Court and lower federal courts have identified a total of four factors which must be considered when court-martialing a civilian for their conduct in a combat theater while accompanying a military force. Well, today the government has identified actual fighting, actual hostilities as a limiting principle. Why isn't that sufficient? Your Honor, there are three other factors which include the civilian's role within the military unit, the nature of the offense and its impact upon the military mission, and the particular uh, importance of using the court-martial. Counsel, with respect to your last, with respect to the last point that you made, uh, I'll ask you the same question that I, that I asked um, the government's counsel. Um, you say in your brief that one, with respect to the comparative advantage, you know, you, you, you note that if the, you note that the existence of an alternative um, form would be important, right? Your Honor, it is part of that factor, but an alternative. So, so in 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 a case, if we change the facts of this case, so that there was in fact an alternative forum, meaning that this um, individual was subject to media and could have been um, had his trial take place in a federal district court. In your view, would that um, factor into the analysis as to whether he should be tried under the UCMJ? It would it would factor into the analysis. However, it's important to note that an alternate forum is not an equivalent forum. So in your view, um, getting back to the question I asked the appellant at the beginning, I asked him whether this was a, a facial or an, an as-applied challenge. I, I think what you're saying is that as a facial matter that the statute is constitutional, but that, that as-applied challenges could be made based on these four factors. Is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. 
Uh, the Supreme Court has noted that uh, I, the military may court-martial civilian in certain circumstances, and these four factors identify the, the constitutional circumstances. Just to be clear, is, yours, is this a totality of the circumstances test? Is this a weigh all of the factors and see which one feels strongest? Is this a they all must be present test? Yeah, your, your factors are quite clear. You've laid them out, but I just don't know what the predicate is. I have to find each of those to check the box or just that one is really present? Your Honor, all four factors must be present to some degree. Can you tell us how they were present to some degree in this case? Yes, Your Honor. The first factor was the proximity to hostilities. And in this case, Mr. Ali was at the very heart of hostilities. Every time he left the combat outpost, he and the mili his military unit faced threats from improvised explosive devices and small arms fire. Are you prepared to say at what point his, his, I don't know, approximation is a word, his proximity to hostilities is not close enough? I'm not prepared to make that, uh, that uh, point right now, Your Honor. Um, however, in this case... And you case, understand why, because yes. in your own brief you talk about there's two trends here. One is the use of contractors, and the other is the use of global po power, and that we project global power from the United States overseas and that we've used many contractors. So this issue about proximity to hostilities is critical. And I appreciate that you're saying this meets it. I don't want to tell you when, when you fall off. Can you kind of walk me back and tell me a little bit? Can yes, you Your at Honor. least tell me when I know I'm off? Yes, Your Honor. And I can, then I and, know where the gray area is defined? Uh, if, we're, if it's a scale that is 0 to 10, uh, the appellant's at 10, and perhaps Aviano Air Force Base would be 0. Okay. Is this geographic? <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, it is geographic to a certain degree. Be, and and I, I mean that proximity can be geography or it can be sort of a combat action ribbon type of thing, which is if you're eligible for a combat action ribbon, you're eligible for this clause. Otherwise, you're not. And I'm so I'm, I'm, Your Honor, it is I, a geographic term. And, and the reason for that is because when you are in the presence of actual hostilities or uh, proximate to it, the need to uh, adhere to military discipline is especially important. And thus, the closer you get to hostilities, the more important this factor uh, becomes. The second factor is the civilian's role within the military unit. And this is measured by the degree of importance uh, the civilian's role is to the accomplishment of the mission. Counsel, related to that, to that issue, and if you're not prepared to, to discuss it, um, that's totally okay because it's not in your amicus brief. Do you have a view um, with respect to the strength of... Um, the government's argument that, um, that government contractors, by their very nature, um, are members of the land and naval forces. Do you agree with that statement? I do not agree with that statement, Your Honor. I think, it's a, it, I think the court appropriately identified many of the uh, logistical um, problems with shoehorning contractors in uh, into the land and naval forces, which is why we believe that the war powers are the most appropriate uh, constitutional source of authority. And uh, in this case, uh, control of the battlefield is at the very heart of the war powers. War powers are, are there to enable the national government to wage war effectively. And here, uh, Congress passed laws, um, and I'm quoting from Ex Parte Milligan, uh, that Congress can pass all legislation essential to the prosecution of the war with vigor and success. And surely the uh, imposition of military discipline at the battlefront uh, meets that particular test. Go back to your four factors, please, if you would, because 
what you're doing is trying to suggest to us where the limit of authority may lie. You've provided a contextual test, and it's not clear where the context gets gray and where it falls off. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, so the second factor is the civilian's role or the, the essentialness to the, to the mission. And on, uh, on the, again, on the 10 scale would be the appellant who's without whom the military police squad could not function. And at the other end of the spectrum uh, would be Stephen Colbert, who may be accompanying the forces but is not critical to the operational success. Does it matter whether they're performing a core military function or not? No, Your Honor. It's the degree to which the civilian's role is critical to the uh, to the so operation success. Cook, they could be just as important as an interpreter because armies fight on their stomachs. It's it's possible, Your Honor. The third factor is the extent to which this type of offense uh, impacts the mission, and uh, they have always courts have always upheld jurisdiction uh, when the nature of the offense impacted the mission. For example, in the Revolutionary War, embezzlement, in the uh, Civil War, selling liquor to the troops, and in World War I, uh, refusing to stand watch for submarines. So in which case uh, has the Supreme Court or another court used that test to assess jurisdiction as opposed to describing jurisdiction? Your Honor, no, uh, no case has uh, held that uh, the jurisdiction turned on the nature of the offense. So uh, why should why should we apply that as a as a criteria then? Why should we impose that uh, and rewrite the statute to write that in there as a uh, congressional requirement? Your Honor, that's a, it's an important factor for the constitutional test because it's inherent in the war powers. If the offense does not affect the conduct of the war, it's difficult to see how that punishing that offense would be uh, constitutional under the war powers. And in this case, um, Mr. Ali's uh, actions were detrimental to the mission, but perhaps uh, not as detrimental as, say, sabotage or espionage. And on the, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, if Mr. Ali passed a bad check to pay his utility bill back in Canada, uh, that would not, be, uh, would not meet this particular, um, a particular test. I see you're running out of time. Can I ask a question? Um, counsel, and again, if you're not prepared to, to discuss this, um, it's because it's not the subject of your particular brief, but you seem well-versed in, in this area. Um, you know, assuming that, that an, an appellee such as this one received all the protections of a court-martial um, and is a foreign national with a court-martial taking place um, outside of the United States, um, do you have a view as to whether we even need to reach the constitutional issues at all? Um, or put another way, why um, are the Fifth and Sixth Amendment arguments that um, Appelli is making with respect to why he needed more than a court-martial relevant or applicable at all? Respectfully, Your Honor, I'm not prepared to okay, fair enough. answer that. You've relied on the war power. I see you're out of time. This will be a short question. Thank you, Your Honor. You've relied on the war power. Congress passed this statute, the President implemented it. To what extent, if at all, should a court exercise a, any degree of deference in this war power national security matter, in your view? Your Honor, the court should apply a limited deference because here we're talking about the undivided war powers of the national government. And as, as the Supreme Court noted in Rotsker v. Goldberg, uh, judicial deference in this area should be at its uh, apogee. That would be great deference. Well, yeah, great I'm, deference. I'm yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
I have limited. <laughs> uh, li limited. Limited. Leave me with a, uh, your sound bite on that one, then, because I'm. You're sort of both you, places. Your Honor, the uh, because the the executive and the legislative branches were working in concert, the uh, undivided uh, war powers uh, judicial uh, judicial deference should be um, limited. So it's in, Youngstown. Yes, Your no, Honor. No, no, this, no. This would be you the said third. limited. Is it yeah. defer like a lot or defer a little? Deep. It would be defer a lot. Defer a lot, but defer a lot means if it's state secrets, courts defer a lot as in they don't even look behind the thing sometimes. You would sometimes. say great deference. It's great deference. I would Apogee say equals great deference, and Nader means little deference. <laughs> great deference. Yes, great no, deference. No, 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 well, so, so, short, so shortly after the court decided Youngstown, in 1952, the Supreme Court, in a series of cases with Toth, Covert, Guagliardo, did any of those cases reflect any degree of deference beyond the normal deference that the court would provide to a statute passed by Congress? Was there any foreign policy or war powers deference in those cases? No, Your Honor, because each one of those cases was grounded in the Make Rules Clause. And because there were uh, neither Reed, Kinsella, Guargliato, or Grisham, there were all peacetime cases. Here we're talking about an area of active hostilities that have been going on for, for several years. Consul, can you briefly address your fourth factor before you sit down? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, it's the importance to it, or the extent to which a court-martial uh, is important in maintaining good order and discipline on the battlefield. Uh, a court-martial is uniquely effective in this regard because it, it, is, it proceeds with dispatch, it's designed to take place in theater, and it's visible to the fighting then force. Then why shouldn't they be using court-martials for all of the offenses that are taking place instead of bringing everyone else back to the United States? Uh, Your Honor, because uh, in an area of actual hostilities, a battlefield commander is concerned prim primarily with achieving the military objective and not necessarily court-martialing uh, anyone that, uh, that may or may not deserve it. Uh, they will only take action in severe cases such as this one uh, where uh, there's a very serious um, threat to good order and discipline. A, is uh, a threat to good order and discipline in this case if there was no alternative form available? Again, Your Honor, that's a factor, but uh, even if an alternative form was available, a court-martial in this case was appropriate. Thank you, Counsel. As Thank you've you learned, we have a either can't tell time or have a flexible <laughs> sense of what 10 minutes means. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you for your argument. We will now hear a rebuttal, please, from the appellant. Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to make three points on rebuttal. The first, the court and the government discussed Operation Noble Eagle as we briefed in, uh, in appellant's brief. The problem is there is no definition for in the field in the statute, and there's no congressional history for what that means. So that leaves us with the Supreme Court uh, precedent, specifically in Judge Harlan's concurrence. Again, one of the elements of in the field has to mean absence, the absence of civil authority. Um, that's what makes military jurisdiction appropriate. And even the absence in the absence of civil authority in the United States or anywhere in the world. Well, I, in today's modern age, Your Honor, as demonstrated by the Bram case, Mija case, um, modern transportation, modern communication makes it possible. You mean in the United States? That is an easy, short question. Yes, Your Honor, in, in the United States, in the availability of communication with the United States. 
but but that's not this case, and we don't have to decide the whole, the parade of horribles to decide this case, do we? What you're arguing is saying that you know horrible things will happen, the roof will fall in, and constitutional liberty will die. Uh, but we don't have to decide that today, do we? This is a case of an alien in an alien land in a, in a time of actual hostilities. Well, this, this do we need to reach your parade of horribles? No, Your Honor, but this goes to my, my second point, um, the issue of necessity. You know, this is one case that the government apparently chose to use a, as a, some sort of test case. And if the court refers to the newest version of AR-2710, which is referenced in our brief, and in fact, they exempt the host nationals as a matter of Army regulation from court-martial jurisdiction. So in fact, if that regulation had been in place at the time of Mr. Ali's court-martial, we would not be here today. So certainly, there was no um, overwhelming military necessity. Making a due process argument, or what are you making? No, no, Your Honor. I'm, I'm responding to the government's argument of military necessity as a reason to overcome the requirement for um, Article Three jurisdiction as opposed to court-martial so, jurisdiction. So if, if going forward the Army has exempted host nationals from, from court-martial jurisdiction um, as a matter of their own decision, and if at this time all other individuals are sent back to the United States and tried under media, um, we're back to my question, which is this is a case about one particular person, a, a class of one, which doesn't change our du or, or the duty for us to decide the case, but I'm just asking you, is this all about this particular individual? It, it, it seems so, Your Honor, but it, it's, it's odd that uh, the government chose to use this as a test case and then well, promptly... Well, if it's the only case, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if it's the only case, they don't have many alternatives, right? Well, there were, and I believe in the amicus for appellants uh, brief uh, references several other cases that were initially brought and then and then withdrawn. Um, for what reason, I don't know. Well, um, but that happens all the time in court martials too, right? People well, it, charges it was preferred in, and then they're withdrawn. It, it was in response to uh, habeas petitions, um, Your Honor. At which point, the government apparently decided that it, it wasn't worth the effort. But make sure you get your third point out. Yes, sir. The um, back to uh, Judge Efron's question, uh, Your Honor, in reference to uh, the applicable pages in Verdugo. It's at, it starts at page 265 and concludes on 266, the analysis where the Fifth and Sixth Amendment apply to all persons versus the Fourth Amendment applies to um, U.S. citizens. That's page 265 and 266. Um, and a actually, Your Honor, I do have one more point um, in reference to the, uh, the War Powers Act uh, or the War Powers Applicability. Um, I would refer the court to footnote number two in the Gugliardo case. And in that case, um, the lower courts based their decision, and in fact the, the charging decision and the jurisdictional decision was based on Article 211, not the War Powers Act. Um, and so the Supreme Court declined to decide Gugliardo on the War Powers Act. And, and I think that that in is the In the War same. Powers Constitution, not war, the War Powers I'm Act. I'm sorry. Yes, Your Honor. The War Powers uh, found in the Constitution. So does that tell us anything more than those cases do not establish a binding precedent at this point, and that this court, while it must pay attention to what the Supreme Court said in the covert through Guagliardo set of cases, is not bound by any of them with respect to Article 2A10. Well, Your Honor, I think it informs your question earlier about uh, Reed 
v. Covert, pages 22 through 23, where they make reference to these other um, situations where civilians were subjected to court martial jurisdiction right. under the war powers theory. Right, but isn't this, in fact, isn't this what you said in your brief? That is, that this is, in fact, a case of first impression uh, at this stage. It's a case of first impression, Your Honor. Um, yes, uh, because of the insertion of the words contingency operation into the statute. But I would go back to our, our main point in the argument, and that is that the Toth Doctrine applies. Counsel, you're out of time. Would you care to summarize in one sentence or less? <laughs> <laughs> you, may, you may summarize if you wish. Certainly, Your Honor. Um, the, the Toth Doctrine controls the jurisdictional analysis in this case. Congress chose not to extend Article III jurisdiction and instead chose to use court-martial jurisdiction as a catch-all jurisdiction, and that violates the constitutional principles enunciated in Toth. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Uh, thank you, all counsel, including Amicus. Uh, the case is now submitted. Before we recess the court, let me just say we're, we're going to recess the court. You can practice standing up and down. We'll stay in place, and after that, uh, we'll then do questions and answers if you would like. This is a good time to escape if you have a class. Uh, but if you don't, we hope you'll stay and ask questions, ask questions of counsel as well as the bench. The ground rule, of course, is not to ask any questions that either directly, indirectly, or veiled are addressed to the case. Fair enough, but you can ask questions about the military justice system or anything like that. So please, uh, where's our clerk of the court? <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. Could you please... Uh, All rise.